You are now listening to the sound of sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Folks, I hit the full opening button instead of the opening theme button. So you are getting a full rendition of our sound effect thing now, or of our opening theme. I bet Benjamin's kind of awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great Good theme. stuff. Bum, 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 bum. We're not filling time. Just spilling rhymes. Got lots of dimes. Working the mines. Got rhymes? That's because I forgot my lines. You just stole my line. Me, you need some better lines. I'm a rapper. I got a rhyme for that, but (laughs) 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 I could like take this music out now, but kind of liking it. I think people want the full theme today. Yeah, believe me, folks, it's all downhill from here. (laughs) Nah, this episode is gonna be great. This episode will be great. I would happily rate this episode 10 out of 10. So give me a rating form and then I'll fill it out with a pen. That went into a bridge I wasn't expecting. This is a cool bridge. Never get to hear this. Yeah. I feel like I'm traveling through a star field or something like that. And now I'm arriving like the savior of my people. Bringing that sanity to your house. Please don't listen this with the way a that mouse. we in uh, the show. When this show finally ends, it's just this theme all the way to the very end. Well, one day this show will end. One day the hearts of man will fail them. Today, eh, we'll see. We'll find out. <laughs> all right. A excellent. Use of time. Welcome to Sound of Sanity. I am Nathan. We're just kidding. This is going to be a great show. Arguably the best show that we've ever done. We've got the captain right there. Captain Solzer. This is a new one. The captain. Arr. I am, of course, the host. And we've got our greatest living theologian, Jake Menzel, in the his house, y'all. Hey. So, today is another one of our famed reading episodes, <laughs> where we're talking about books that we've been reading lately. What books have you guys been reading? Which we call Sanity Shelves, usually. Yeah, sorry, Ben. You didn't want to do that today, No, I did, did I did. Okay. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to All do right. it. I just didn't have it ready to go. No, no, no. I'm Today, it's Sanity Shelves, and we are talking about books that we've just read. 
What books have you guys been reading? I just finished the book, Finally Boundaries, which some of us have been reading, and it was good. It was helpful. I don't know that I have much to say that we haven't already said, but it's just a practical application of attachment theory, boiled down kind of thing. There is There are lots of helpful principles for thinking about yourself and your time and your obligations to other people, how you should have good fences because they make good neighbors. And of course, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of silly parts in terms of the way the authors are going to use scripture and argue from scripture for certain things, but that I feel like most of that is minor annoyances along the way. It's a helpful book. I'd recommend it. Read with discernment. Take with salt. So I was in the car with our greatest living theologian, Jacob Menzel, mm. and he was just listening to the end of Boundaries. So I heard the, and I heard the, that the gay part that you're referring to, the part about like, well, God didn't want us to hurt him. So he had boundaries and it is the dumbest part of the book. But mm-hmm. listening to that part reminded me what a great book it is and that everyone should read it and that it's should just be a foundational text. I think it's a foundational yeah. text at this point. I had never read it. I finished it a couple of weeks back. Loved it. It definitely has some horrible parts, some bad parts, and dumb parts. Mm-hmm. For example, just in terms of the practical outworking of his stuff, for example, he goes on a long riff about how stupid it is that his daughter's Christian school bans social media and teenagers and middle school students should have social media accounts so that they learn how to have proper boundaries from the outset. And so you're talking about kids with smartphones and social media accounts and him just like nonchalantly asserting anybody who would have any hesitations about giving that sort of thing to their 12, 13 year old daughter is stupid. Well, you you want to make sure to take your kids to the red light district so they can learn to not look in the windows. Right. How else are they going to learn to not look at the prostitutes in the windows? This wasn't in my book. I don't think. Were you listening to an updated edition? It must've been. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I I, I mean, I didn't get that. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you didn't learn I guess I'm happy that I didn't get that. Social problem. media probably well, wasn't a thing. probably, yeah, updated and expanded. Yeah. yeah I mean, the book okay. was first written in the early 90s when none of what Jake just said would have been a thing. So, yeah. Or maybe even the late 80s. I don't remember. But yeah, this is updated and expanded. And I think he even references TikTok. He certainly reference, references yeah. Snapchat and Instagram. So it's pretty, pretty recent in terms of his view and understanding of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, really great, really helpful kind of book I wish I had read with some trust and some openness about 20 years ago. Mm. And the kind of book that I want to put in the hands of lots of people just needs to be part of the conversation. Yep. I say we get everyone at church. We hand them this book. We say, you got to read this. You have to read this tonight. You're not allowed to leave Yep. until and, you read this. And you have to uncritically accept every part of it. Right. <laughs> and if you're that's our boundary with yep. you <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> my boundary is i get to put my hand on your shoulder in a creepy way <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> anything can be misused <laughs> hammers good for nails bad for foreheads yeah boundaries great book yeah boundaries is, is there anything else that we should say about obvious misuses of this i'm just trying to think of i can't i don't think that i've been in church cultures that have been influenced by this or have used any of the lingo of boundaries, really. So I, nothing's jumping out at me. There's plenty of obvious ways to misuse this stuff. Well, there's definitely a kind of person that's going to take this and use it to... Um, justify their selfishness. And yeah, their, justify a ton of right. selfishness 
so that their life is not oriented to God or the church. Church is just another thing in their life, and they are the orderer and keeper of their life. That's right. And so they've set up their boundaries, and don't you dare ask them to do anything outside of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Or consider whether or not you see in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, the people are orienting themselves to God by orienting themselves to the church and the culture of the church, and their life radiates and out from that and is shaped by that sort of thing. There's a place, a central place for the church, family, and community in terms of shaping your life and shaping the boundaries of your life. That's right. And there's a very easy way to just make your make church your an a la carte piece of your life. Yep. Instead of allowing God to be the one who d- defines and determines things. So I was talking to somebody... Oh, just the other day, it was one of our elders about a family in his church and an older woman in the church who he wanted to lead a Bible study. And she's like, yeah, do we need that right now? Do I need that in my life? And he's like, well, she's not wrong, but also there's something fundamentally wrong because her grid was, well, church is only allowed to take up so much of my time because the family and the school and the sports and the things... It's like, well, could you consider, I understand your time's important and everything like that, but can the church be a little bit more central in your life? Bit, bit up further in the hierarchy in yeah. your life. Yeah, I, th- I feel like the school's the most important thing and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, the one, and one other thing, the boundaries doesn't, it doesn't have that exactly. You could, they, I think they would have some plausible deniability, but it doesn't quite have that. And the other thing it doesn't have is it doesn't talk about God's glory. It doesn't talk about, hey, you should be focused on this. Making God happy should be your focus. All your boundaries should be oriented to doing this. Now, again, they have some plausible deniability in the book, but that's not their, that's not what they're driving you towards, really. So that's kind of a weakness, built-in lack of focus that you have to bring. I think it reminds me a lot of the current discussions happening in the manosphere about sexuality, where Somebody discovers masculinity and suddenly everything is about being a man. And it's like, that's better than not being a man. But mm-hmm. what's really good is when you have a good dad and you can just sort of naturally be a man and then you can make little adjustments here and there as you go through life. It, boundaries, mm-hmm. wonderful thing to learn in your 30s, better than not learning it. But also if it becomes the, the brush that you're suddenly going to paint the whole mm-hmm. world with. Including God. Including God. Right. That's going to be a problem. But. It's a great book. It's it is foundational. We've been talking a lot about mental health for whatever reason. I just did a sermon on psychology. I've been thinking a lot about those kinds of things, and I think Boundaries is a book that I personally would give to anyone, whatever their problem was. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a uh, I was abused sexually. Yeah. Whatever. It's like start here. This is just some good foundation. Don't go crazy mm-hmm. with it. But just if you can get this in your bones, then where do I begin? Where do other people end? And what's my personal responsibility to God and the people around me? Yeah. So helpful. Basic. It's so helpful. And things that get twisted when you come from an unhealthy home environment or an unhealthy church environment. Yeah. Um, or both. Yeah. And so I'm, if you've grown up in a broken home, if it's just all kinds of ways that we get screwed up in how we think about these things as kids because we just didn't have godly fathers and mothers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good to be able to rewrite that code in yourself. Hmm. All right. What other books are we reading? Ben, you got to start. Is there anything else that you're reading? 
No. Nothing I want to bring up. I want to keep it all <laughs> hidden. <laughs> okay, well. Yeah, that's wow. right. <laughs> what kind of things does Ben read that he doesn't want to share on the podcast? <laughs> we'll leave you to speculate, <laughs> dear listener. <laughs> wow. Uh, could have been the library of it's pulp. Pretty intense. Uh, All right, fine, Nathan. I'll tell you one thing <laughs> that I'm in the middle of reading. It's an old book you could find, listener, on the Internet Archive, or maybe it's Open Library, which is the same thing. It's like a function of the Internet Archive, if you ever go there. And it's called, I think it's out of print, it's called The Eschatology of Victory. That's right. It's a book about post-millennialism. But it's cool. It's really enjoyable. It's by Marcellus Kick, who was like the founding editor of Christianity Today. If I'm not mistaken, I didn't know anything about the guy. He is, he's helpful. It's a book with a relatively narrow scope. The thing that is sticking out most in my mind about it so far, and I'm not done. When I say narrow scope, what I mean is he'll like, we're going to talk about one chapter of Matthew and two chapters of Revelation. And the whole book is that, which is nice in some ways. So he's just going to focus on exegesis. I don't think he gets everything right, but he's good. And the most sort of helpful connection that he helped me draw, and I know that I'd heard this before, but it did not stick, was that in, I'm not even going to get the chapter right, in Revelation 20, I think, where it's talking about the two resurrections, the first resurrection from the dead. It's going to be like, well, Scripture talks about regeneration in terms of resurrection everywhere. You can find it in John 5. You could find it in Ephesians 2. When people come to Jesus, they are raised from the dead, spiritually speaking. It's all over Scripture. This is, seems to be a pretty clear connection. This is the first resurrection. We are using symbolic and figurative language. Look how many times that you can find in Scripture where you're going to talk about John 5 would be the place to go. Jesus talks about an hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and live. And he's clearly talking about Right, Like, right now, you can come alive in me. And in the future, all the dead bodies are going to come out of the graves. So, just this guy making those connections for you and just patiently working through the text, really helpful. Really good. So, it doesn't matter if you buy all of his argumentation, but stuff like that is, I'm like, oh, this is great. Even if this is really obvious, it wasn't, I didn't make these connections like that. That's great. So, I recommend it. It's not a very long book. He's a good writer. Never heard of the guy before, I th- it seems like he's actually a significant guy in terms of American evangelical history. Christianity Today is something that this really solid, Bible-believing, Reformed guy helped start that became what it is now, which is something absolutely untrustworthy. That's interesting. I'm sure there's more to his story. I might learn a little more about him now that I've been reading this book. There you go. Uh, title and author again, please. An Eschatology of Victory by... J. Marcellus Kick. Kick is K-I-K. I don't know what that's... Is that Dutch or something? I'm not really sure. I don't even know if you pronounce it Kick or Kitsch or something. There you go. Yeah. J. Marcellus Kick. Yeah. That, I guess, was your final book. Yeah. All right, Jake. What you been reading besides Boundaries, my friend? I've still dabbled a little bit in Outlive by Peter Atia, but not much. And Habits of the Household by Justin Early, but oh, not yeah. much. I have been, I did finish Boundaries, like I said. I have been dabbling in and out of Unseen Realm by Heiser, taking that in in chunks. Nothing really interesting to talk about there, just 
Well, I, maybe the interesting thing to talk about is that I think that's why I decided while we're breaking from the bookening to read to reread till we have faces. Yeah. So we know um, Heiser's had at least one bad influence on one person. Yeah. <laughs> so I just finished part one of Till We Have Faces last night, which is good. The part one's great. Part one's great. Don't have any problem with part one. <laughs> but part two starts tonight. And so that's when it goes off the rails. Um, C.S. Lewis, he likes pagans. No one can bear to hear this, but he does. He's a weirdo. Sorry if you didn't know. That's pretty much it, yeah. But it is fun to read Lewis. It, Lewis is reading through ancient myth, through the lens of ancient mythology and through medieval, I think just the, a medieval worldview, right? That's the way he approaches things like this, the spiritual realm, mm. which was part of what was interesting about this to me. Even just little things as you go through it, that Heiser's going to say things like, well, the ancient, the mighty men of old are the Nephilim or the descendants of the watchers, the fallen angels and the daughters of men, not the Sethite view of that Genesis six passage, right? An Enochian view. And so they're going to have the blood of the gods in them. And there's going to be that all that stuff that corresponds to Graham Hancock and the ancient advanced civilization that, built the pyramids and built these global centers of worship to themselves, ruled by the children of the gods with the blood of the gods in their veins and demanding their pagan ancient sacrifices and human sacrifices, things like that, they all get wiped out. And then you have the people who come and inherit the pyramids and under, have a cultural memory of the divine or quasi-divine beings who inhabited them or who ruled there. And so all the kings claiming divine blood or being children of the gods or a separate race or part of that heritage, basically more or less claiming Nephilim status. This is going to be Heiser's view. Hmm. And so you go and you read Lewis, who is not thinking maybe in the same terms as Heiser, but one of the things that's going to come up over and over and over again are the daughters of kings having the blood of the gods and divine or quasi-divine status and therefore being more fit to for Psyche to mate with Cupid or whatever and then become a goddess or whatever through that, all that sort of thing. Anyhow, it's just fascinating. Hmm. So Lewis picked up on those pagan myth threads that Heiser's going to maybe legitimate, and Lewis is just going to use them for his... Yeah, because he's just reading them in all kinds of other places, right? Right. But yeah. he's picked up on all of them. Yeah. And so it's really just sort of fascinating in that respect. Well, and to him, they're part of the... Sorry, how do I not say this pretentiously? They're, I want to say something pretentious, so say I'm going to say it. it. They're part of the symbolic architecture of the world, right? Right. And, I mean, Lewis, what you end up discovering is that Lewis's Christianity is just very Jungian. And that's the kind of thing that we talk about. He just loves, he's just a, he believes in pagan spirituality. He believes in the old gods and that Christianity is the one true myth. And that way of framing it is just, yeah. Has a lot of bad consequences. Can't go there with you guys. I think he's great. I think he believes in a little lion that I like to call Aslan. And uh, Aslan's a great guy. And he's not a tame lion. That's what I like to say. And C.S. Lewis, 
Per- practically perfect in every way. Practically? How dare you? <laughs> perfect. Uh, a perfect man. Could have stood to lose a little weight. Chubby. Maybe the C stood for chubby. <laughs> Outside of that, I just started... Vince trying not to laugh. Jake's moving and us along. And it's good. It's good. Yeah. I love C.S. Lewis. Yay. I love Narnia. I really do. Yeah. Go listen to Nathan's Narnia takes. And They're good. I, I defy you to find more interesting. You know what? If you look for Narnia takes, you'll find, oh, great. I read it when I was a kid. It's great. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. I feel the same way. I like Narnia, but let's interrogate the text, people. Let's let's interrogate no, the text. You really should. C.S. Lewis would want us to. Yeah, you should go listen to our takes, the bookending takes on Lewis start in Narnia, but then listen to the take on Till We Have Faces. And I think it may just be the closest thing to a proper, accurate, respectful. Yeah, we like. We actually do like C.S. Lewis. If I sound well, in battle, I, it's no. Just... I think. I think it's. I think he, we actually take him seriously enough to accept his terms and not try to whitewash them or baptize them. And I think there's a even in that rejection of a lot of his actual worldview. There's more respect for him as a man and as a philosopher and as a writer than a lot of guys who are out there whitewashing everything. Yeah, just just to be very clear, because now I've been passive aggressive and let, bared my teeth a little bit. Maybe some people don't understand the context. I do actually love C.S. Lewis. I actually love most of his works. I, I think Till We Have Faces is extremely problematic for reasons that you can listen to on the Bookening podcast us discuss at length. But I love C.S. Lewis. I especially love his nonfiction. I love, I mean, the everybody knows this now, but it used to be the world's best kept secret that the, uh, abolition, of the abolition of Man was his best work. And now everybody knows that because we're living it. But The Abolition of Man is just an amazingly prophetic and it just explains the entire world. And I love C.S. Lewis. I think C.S. And then L- he fictionalized it for your kids in a little book called That Hideous Strength. And it's also great yeah. in its own right. But C.S. Lewis was a guy that liked rational discussion that liked oxfordian debate that liked men talking to each other and positing ideas and then backing them up with evidence and coming back so c.s lewis i believe would want us to interrogate his ideas to talk about the places where we feel uncomfortable with them and the whole kind of the thing that's happened the reason that i feel embattled about this is because anytime we say anything about lewis people go crazy And they're just like, what? And I think they don't hear us making a point, whatever point we're making. What they hear is, you just kicked over the wardrobe from my childhood. And I do not mean to kick over the wardrobe. And now it's become a cycle because I get aggressive like I just did. But And so I am actually trying to kick over the wardrobe, which which isn't doing anyone anyone any good. But we just want to engage with him like he's a dude, a sinner, a, a, a guy that had some great ideas and was a good writer. And I love C.S. Lewis. To this day, if I have to write an essay or something like that, I go read C.S. Lewis. Like that's the person whose sort of soul I want to infuse me as I try and get an idea down on paper more than Chesterton, more than any other, you know, more than Hemingway. More, I, I don't know how. E.B. E. White, yeah, who else you would name? Like, I, I want to see the loose, clear, lucid way that Lewis could lay out an idea so that anyone could understand it. And his use of metaphor and his building of arguments, it's just, it's superb. So, anyway. 
What else you guys been reading, Jake? The only other book off the top of my head, I did spend a couple of days dabbling in church planning books and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but that's boring. I I started listening to The Wounded Heart by Dan Allender not long ago. And for those of you that don't know, The Wounded Heart is a book specifically dealing with victims of sexual abuse. And I had never read it before, but it's a book that's widely used in our circles for people who have suffered sexual abuse and abuse of other kinds because it translates to that sort of thing or just had traumatic childhoods. And so I just started it fresh to it, but it's so far really great and lives up to the hype. And I commend it. Yes. D- Dan Allender's Great Wounded Heart is probably, I'd say, the best book on the subject that I'm aware of. There's quotes from it that live in my head. Denial of the past is always a denial of God is something that he says in there, which I, which is something that's lived with me and helped me. I think he talks, I think he talks in that book about how contempt is a species of control, which is really useful. Hmm stuff <clears throat> let me externalize the problem so that i have something to hate and so i have something to, con- to control yeah as long as i can as long as i'm contemptuous about myself i feel like i'm controlling myself as long as i'm contemptuous towards someone else mm-hmm. anyway that's good that might be me putting it in different clothes than he puts it in but i think he really helped me think those sorts of things through so yeah i like that book a lot That's it? That's all you're reading? Yeah. I dabble in some other things here and there. But yeah, that's pretty much it for me right now. I'm still sort of in that same place that I was. I think the last time we talked about this, where depending on the stresses and pressures in my life and the time that I have, I'm either hungry for input and ideas and thoughts and take car time reading and listening, or I am just like fried. And in it's always trying to find that balance. But a lot of the last couple of months, I've just been fried. So I have not spent mm-hmm. a lot of time reading or wanting to listen to things, but just trying to take every moment I can to relax, refresh, reset, just have felt very much running at the end of, at the end of things, not having a lot of time to, to give spare thoughts and energy Mm -hmm. yeah Um, looking to reprioritize refocus find ways to simplify my life is the actual priority right now over spending a lot of time reading and studying things yeah same well the other thing i did that was dumb in terms of my reading is i was like i'm going to actually read and so now i never read yeah i was like i'm i have a physical copy of the book I'm going to actually the book that I wanted to read only exists physically. Nobody's ever done an audio book. So I am slowly plotting through it, but I need to either prioritize it or just give up and do the audio book because it's just really hard to fit. What is it? Uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's history of psychology. I'm afraid I don't have it, the name hmm. right in front of me. I'll bring it next time. But cool. it's great. It's a pot because I've been looking for a popular history of psychology because I really love learning about the history of psychology. I, like I said, I preach a sermon on it, which you can hear uh, if you're interested, which is a weird place to give a history of psychology because you got to like pack it into four minutes and then you want the sermon to actually have a point that will affect people's hearts as opposed to just being like a lesson. So I obviously learned a lot of things that I couldn't turn around and put in the book. But yeah, he starts by talking about 
an ancient Egyptian king, and this king wanted to prove that the Egyptian race was superior. And so he separated two kids from their parents and and basically had their caretakers not speak to them. The idea being that if they were not given a language, they would develop naturally the language that was Egyptian. His theory was, we are superior, so it left to, to your own devices, you will become Egyptian. And this guy casts this Egyptian, ancient Egyptian king, whoever he was, as the first psych, the first psychological experiment. So there's lots of fun historical. It didn't work, by the way. The kids just ended Shocker. up gibbering morons. But he takes you through Plato's conception of what a human being is and Socrates and obviously the Middle Age Socratic, your Thomas Aquinas. He takes you through theologians. He's not a Christian. It's just really interesting to. But con- you can't deal with psychology without reckoning with Augustine. Right, exactly. And he does. And he does a pretty good job. He spends a long time in the Bible and. The way he wants to cast the Bible, which I think is not correct, but is interesting, is he wants to say, I'm not going to do it just... Communal over individual and... Yeah, there's some of that, but also predestined over, you know, in, in other words, he takes very seriously the passages where it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's just like, actually, if you look at... No if you agency. Just, if you just look at it. It's like people do things because God made them to do those things. This man was made to do this thing. There's not a real big emphasis on personal agency, personal agency, agency and yeah. the personality as a developing complex mechanism. And I don't think he's exactly right about that, obviously. But it is also interesting to look at the Bible through that lens and ask just exactly what does the Bible say about personality? And, and I'm not going to give you any interesting answers right now, but it is just an interesting experiment. Like, like we think about these things with layers, like subconscious and conscious and all these different things, these ideas that we draw from psychology. You go back and you actually look at the scriptures and you ask yourself, okay, what is it that makes a man? And this guy wants to position the Bible as being part of just another ancient text, part of other ancient texts. And what he's saying is everybody, nobody back then thought in terms of personality, nobody back then thought, certainly pre-Christ BC, nobody thought in terms of, well, I'm a really selfish person. It's more like, no, you do selfish actions. He's like, you read Homer and you don't actually see, we think we see people with personalities, but we see as people that do things. It's like Odysseus does another thing, as opposed to Odysseus is this kind of a guy, and so therefore, which is interesting. I mean, we'd all probably agree. We'd all say we've read Homer, and Odysseus is crafty. That's his character trait. He's crafty. He's yeah. Like we, but this guy, whether you agree with him or not, what he posits actually is that now you're reading that back in. He's not crafty. He just does crafty things. He just does crafty things. And he says, you look at Plato, you look at Aristotle, you look at the way these guys conceived the, the ancient, the Stoics, the the Epicureans, these different sects of thought at the time. It's like his big point is that the the notion of personality, the notion of a thing that develops, that we get through nature or nurture that kind of exists even independent of our actions is in his mind, a relatively new innovation of the modern psychologist. So I don't know whether I actually agree with that. I don't think that that's, that would not sum up everything that the Bible has to say, certainly. No. But it is interesting to go back 
look at try and figure out just how much you read your own ideas from a modern context into into ancient texts and what the push and pull is there and i think some of his stuff is overstated you could probably already see feel it feel the overstatedness in what i just said but it is an interesting book and more than that it's just a popular history of psychology which i could not find like i remember when i was a teenager early 20s reading a popular history of philosophy and it was really great it just took you through it was by will durant if anybody knows that the great historian he wrote these big tomes that you'll still see if you go to a used bookstore you're going to see a, a full collection of will durant's writings big hard book back books usually going for about 120 dollars for the set of them you'll you see that at every used bookstore if you know to look for it and he wrote a book a really great book called the story of philosophy or something like that and it just takes you through like who was socrates who was plato in a fun accessible light way he does a good job of summing up people as difficult as Immanuel kant and stuff like that um and i'm not the kind of person that like i'll take knowledge where i can get it i'm not like mr well i've got to have a primary source if i can find a good secondary source that's more accessible great just i'm a pragmatist whatever gets the job done i really don't care i understand there's reasons we use primary sources and i understand when it is someone that i know like say john calvin the primary the secondary sources suck and are always misinterpreting him so I don't want to pretend like I read Will Durant, so now I know exactly who Immanuel Kant was. That's what I'm saying. But I think there is a good use of secondary sources. And so I was looking for, it's like, I'm not, I've read Young, I've read a little Freud. I, I know some of these guys, but I don't have the time or space of my life to actually learn about a subject that really intrigues me, which is the modern study of psychology. You know, I'm not going to read all the primary sources. I'm not going to read Pavlov's diaries or something like that to learn about conditioning. So I just need to find a popular book and there's not one. You can find a bunch of crummy academic, you know, the kind of book that you go on Amazon and it costs $300 because you're buying it for some course or something. But I just couldn't find, or you can find really short, like things for kids. Dr. Sigmund Freud was the father of psychoanalysis. And there's like a picture of a guy with a beard kind of Mm -hmm. Bible project style drawing. You can, you can find like super simplified or super academic, but just finding a good popular history of psychology was difficult to find. I finally found one that actually is good, very readable. Sorry, folks, I forget what it is. And my internet is down or I just look it up for you. I'm not going to try and look it up on my phone right now. Sorry, but it's a, it's, it does not exist. It's out of print and it does not exist in an audio form. So I'm trying to read it. And it's good, but yeah. So that's book that I'm reading. I haven't really read much of anything else. Other various psychology books, I guess I've looked at recently. Yeah, that's it. I think maybe I talked about this one last time. I read a book called Out Outsmart Your Brain by Daniel T. Willington, PhD. And uh, shoot. sentence. Knowing doesn't mean being able to understand an explanation. It means being able to explain to others. I did not mean to click on that, but that is Daniel T. Willingham, author of Outsmart Your Brain, which is a book about how to learn things in the easiest way possible, like how to study for tests, how to cool. retain information, memorization techniques. It's another thing I'm pretty interested in. I mean, especially now in my life, it's just like there's things I want to learn, but I don't have a lot of time. 
So what are the hacks? And this guy just gathers them all up. And it's nothing that you probably haven't mostly thought of before. Actually paying attention while someone's talking and taking good notes is your halfway to retention. But he has things like, he talks about the science behind different learning styles and how it's all crap. He's like, there's no such thing as an auditory learner, a visual learning learner. They've done test after test after test. They can't find anyone. You know, people will say that they're a thing, but it never actually corresponds to their ability to retain information. Like it's just, it's bunk. So there's interesting stuff like that. But that's a book I read. Not much to say about it. If you want a book, like if you're a student, highly recommend this book. A great book for how to take notes and how to take tests and how to remember things and how to study how to, is it better to cram or is it better to study 15 minutes a day? Stuff like that. 15 minutes a day. That's right, Jake. Um, Well, actually, no, he is more nuanced on that. He's like, Sometimes it's better to cram if you don't care about ever having the information. For long-term retention, if you don't care about long-term retention, but if you do. So this is the issue they run into with with how they structure medical school. It's all built around these long, intensive modules, and it doesn't periodize any of the training. And every form of periodization requires its own set of recall, and it doesn't feel as satisfying. But every act of recall even in shorter periodization, you don't feel like you're learning and retaining as much, but you do end up learning and retaining more over the long haul. And that applies to Hmm. almost every aspect of memory and learning, even skill development and things. Practicing an instrument, better to practice uh, your piece in chunks and break it up than spend four hours at a time Even little things like ways to tweak your brain about that sort of thing. They took people and had them throw a ping pong ball in a bucket, like on that Bozo the Clown show. And they had people throw the ping pong ball in the bucket at 10 feet. And the test was going to be at 10 feet. They had one set of people throw it at 10 feet consistently. And they had another set of people throw it at 12 feet and 8 feet, but never at 10. And the ones who threw it at 12 feet and 8 feet and never at 10 ended up doing better at 10 after a period of, and again, that's just like all, all the plasticity involved in developing your brain, your memory, your functional memory, your motor memory, everything like that. Yeah. I mean, this guy's big analogy that he starts with is it's exactly like working out. Would you rather walk out of the gym feeling like you had a great workout or would you rather be strong Mm -hmm. and look good or whatever it is you're actually after and he's just like, they're not always the same thing. Sometimes you go to the gym and you feel like you accomplished nothing, but you do that 50 times and then you've accomplished everything. And he's, one of the biggest mistakes that beginners make in the gym is feeling like they have to come out depleted and sore and overworking themselves to the point they can't recover. Yeah, exactly. And he uses that exact mm-hmm. analogy. He's just like people always, when they study, want to get done with their brain exhausted, feeling like I studied. And that is not. Often counterproductive. Totally counterproductive. There's a lot of interesting little tidbits. The other thing he talks about, which I have immediately found has yielded results in my own life, is he says, for whatever reason, the way we're hardwired, the way God made us, saying things out loud. Mm -hmm. And so you don't, if you're trying, if you're memorizing something or if you're trying to recall something, if you're working on your recall, trying to bring something up, say it out loud much more effective than saying it in your mind for whatever reason. 
but they've done test after test and it's just simply true. That's how it works. The other most useful thing I got out of it was the active recall, even when it doesn't get you to the right place is useful in making your memory work. In other words, if I have a flashcards and I haven't looked at them for 30 days and then I pull up a flashcard and I cannot come up with the answer, I should sit there and try and come up with the answer. And even if I never come up with the right answer, simply the act of reaching out and trying to grab it and failing and then turning the card over and looking at what it was, I I will strengthen that memory much better than if I had simply been like, oh, I don't know this. There's just a lot of stuff like that. He's just one of those guys that takes a bunch of science and popularizes it and has fun kind of TED talky analogies and stuff. So that sounds like the kind of book that would be useful to you. I recommend it. Any more thoughts? Anyone? Nope. Mm-mm. All right. Well, we enjoyed bringing you this show. You've been listening to The Captain, the greatest living theologian, and your host, me. (sighs) Until next time. Stay sane.